0: Well, in the latest adventures of the York quarantine, I am preaching my sermon today with a guinea pig in the room. Our son's class pet is staying with us for a few days. And so if you hear any guinea pig-like sounds uh, as I'm speaking, just know that they're probably not from me. Uh, It's Gus over here. I'll try to post a picture of Gus uh, for photographic evidence. Um, have you ever had, have you ever had your mind really fixed on something? I mean, like something you wanted to learn or something you wanted to achieve or maybe something you wanted to purchase. When you really get focused in on that thing, you know how it becomes consuming. I mean, you really just, you think about it and and, in today's, you know, time we might YouTube videos about it. Uh, so for me, one of the things I've wanted to learn how to do during quarantine is uh, how to smoke barbecue, how to make really good barbecue. And so I've been watching YouTube videos on how the masters do it. And eventually, you know, I was, I was able to go out and buy me a smoker so I can get started after I got my wife's permission, of course. Um, but you, you plan around whatever you're focused on. You budget for it. You think about it all the time. Your mind is fixed on it, right? We all know what that's like. Well, the Apostle Paul had an all-consuming passion and desire, and it doesn't take us long when we read Paul's letters, specifically today we're reading through Philippians, it doesn't take long to know what that passion, that consuming fire in Paul was. It was Jesus. Uh, Not only his own personal love and devotion for Jesus, but also making Jesus known to others. It just consumed his whole life. And I want us to see in Philippians chapter 1 today, uh, really an amazing picture of this. Paul, in the midst of all his circumstances, in the midst of everything that might push against his great passion and commitment, uh, he pushed through all the more. With laser focus, Paul never lost the consuming love and passion he had. For Jesus, If anything, circumstances made it grow. And so as we look in Philippians 1 today, it's it's, it's helpful for us to remember Paul's circumstances here because he's actually going to deal with them uh, in a very matter-of-fact way. He's going to talk about his circumstances, uh, his adversity. So remember, Paul was in prison. He was under house arrest in Rome. And while the Christians in Philippi, they loved Paul very dearly, He was 800 miles away. So there's very little that the Philippians can actually do for him at this point. So naturally, uh, they're worried about him, as any of us would be if someone we dearly loved was in jail, too far away for us to visit. Uh, We're unable to bail him out. There's really nothing we can do apart from prayer. And so they're worried for Paul's well-being. They're scared for his life. They know that very well this may end up in his execution. And almost certainly, you have to think in the back of their minds, they're also wondering, what could God possibly be up to in allowing something like this to happen? Where is God in all of this? Such an important person like Paul, such a great servant of God and the gospel. Why is he in prison when he could be out doing great things for the Lord? Well, Paul spends about a half a chapter responding to these questions. Now, he doesn't do it in the way that I would do it, or the way that you might do it. If people are reaching out because they're concerned, we tend to say what? Oh, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, What Paul actually does in response is, is, it's amazing. He puts all the attention, all the emphasis on Jesus, not on himself. Paul shows us what it looks like when Christ is our singular passion and our singular purpose. Even with the whole world on his shoulders, with so much weight and burden upon him, Paul is just laser-focused on what is true, what is good, what is eternal. And we have so much to gain by looking at his words today. So we're going to look at a very large chunk of the scripture Philippians chapter 1, we're actually going to look at verses 12 through 26, all in one message. But the, the the conversation Paul is having here with the church in Philippi really flows quite nicely. So I don't think it'll feel uh, like too much for us. Look with me at Philippians 1, verse 12. Paul's going to address with these people who love him, who are worried about him, he's going to address his circumstances. He's going to give a personal update. Look what he says, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You're worried about my well-being here in prison. But listen, Paul says, my imprisonment is actually achieving God's good purpose right here in Rome. Why was Paul in Rome to begin with? To preach the good news of Jesus. That's the whole reason he came. This was his life's mission. But now he's in prison for preaching the gospel, which would appear on the surface to be game over. That's the end, right? But amazingly, Paul says, my imprisonment is fueling the gospel fire in Rome like never before. For one, everyone knows I'm here for the cause of Christ. There's no secret about why I'm imprisoned, who I am. There were, as you realize, there were a great many very powerful people And Rome was the most powerful city at this time in the world. All these powerful people in the world's most powerful city, they were hearing the gospel because Paul was right there on the inside. Because he was in prison, he was getting an audience he might not otherwise get. And even more than that, Paul says, my imprisonment has emboldened my fellow Christians here in Rome, who are now bursting with passion and courage to share the faith, because of my imprisonment. Isn't that crazy? See, this is the opposite of what we might expect. Surely, now that the all-powerful Romans have dropped the hammer on Paul, all the Christians in Rome are going to duck and cover, right? I mean, that's what makes sense. But the Holy Spirit is using persecution like lighter fluid. This persecution is not extinguishing the movement, it's spreading it. It's actually helped spread it. So there, there's a massive point in what Paul is saying that we need to take to heart. How is God achieving his great purpose for Paul at this point in history? From a Roman prison. From prison. Now this book busts our categories a little bit, I think. Try try to imagine this. Try to imagine God saying to you, I'm going to use you to reach a great many people in your city for Christ. Many will be saved, and many will become proclaimers of the gospel themselves. Now, I would rejoice over God telling me that. I'm sure you would too. We all would. Oh, but then God says, now I'm going to accomplish all of this with you in a prison cell. See, I have trouble reconciling those two ideas, those two concepts, don't you? How could Paul being in prison be in any sense a good thing? Well, Paul sees no contradiction. If it means the growth and the spread of the gospel, then lock me up. See, this this is one of the many examples in the Bible of the fact that God's good purposes... Are not limited by bad circumstances. And I know that sounds so simple when I say it, but it's endlessly deep to consider. So I'm going to say it again God's good purposes are never limited by bad circumstances. And this is proof, right? Proof positive in Paul's life. His circumstance was bad. He wouldn't have chosen to go to prison if it were up to him. But now that he's there, he sees the gospel spreading like never before. God is not being limited by Paul's circumstances. And this, this scripture is also proof that Paul, in the end, Paul cared more about Jesus. He cared more about other people knowing Jesus than he cared about his own freedom and comfort. We don't assume that Paul was happy to be in prison. But he was rejoicing from prison because of what was happening in and through and around him still. His freedom, his comfort, was not his top priority. It was the gospel, and it was people coming to faith in Christ. So here's a question. Is God using our adversity for his greater purposes right now? Is he? That's not really up to us to decide if God is or if he isn't. He most certainly is doing good things all around us, within us, through us. In spite of us, God does great things. But do we see it as Paul did? Do we see our adversity as opportunity for God to accomplish his great work? Well, Paul saw it that way, and Paul actually goes one step beyond what we just saw. Look at verse 15. This is honestly a a difficult scripture here, and you'll see why pretty easily. He's talking about the brothers, the fellow Christians who are boldly sharing the gospel in the midst of Paul's imprisonment. Look at verse 15, though. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Some of the guys in Rome who were outspreading the gospel actually saw Paul as their rival. Perhaps they thought they were smarter than him, or they had a more precise, correct view of certain issues than Paul did. Or maybe they were just envious of his ministry and his success. Well, whatever it was, Paul says they were preaching Jesus with mixed motives. They were doing it freely out in the open while Paul was in prison and they were doing it almost as if to thumb their nose at him. Look at us and look at you as they preach the gospel. Now, isn't that terrible? This scripture has always bothered me. I mean, I remember the first time I read it. It really bothered me. It makes me mad. And what part of what made me mad about this scripture is Paul's own attitude. Shouldn't Paul be mad? But he's not. He says, even for those who preach with mixed motives, as long as they're preaching Jesus, I rejoice. See, Paul was not at all concerned with his reputation or with rivalries. Was it ideal? Was it it an ideal situation that these guys were out preaching with those kinds of motives in their heart? No. But as long as people are hearing the gospel, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice. How in the world does this man sitting in prison not allow all these things to get to him? I mean, not not just the fact that he was in prison, that's bad enough, but now he's got people going around, uh, you know, dragging him through the mud, demeaning his ministry while they get to preach the gospel freely? Is that fair? How does Paul not allow this to bother him? Well, here's how. He tells us in what comes next. This is one of the key scriptures as as we understand the identity of the Apostle Paul. At the very end of verse 18, Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness... Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, when Paul says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance, he does not mean, well, I know that soon I'll get out of prison. Paul's primary concern was not getting out of prison, right? We've already seen that. His primary concern is the spread of the gospel. It's that people have their hearts and lives changed through the grace of Jesus. And he clarifies that really in no uncertain terms in verse 20. It's what we just read. Read verse 20 with me again. I will not be put to shame in anything. That is his hope and expectation. Meaning God will not fail me. I know that for a fact. And I will not fail him in what he's called me to do. But with all boldness, Christ will be exalted in me, whether in life or in death. So Paul is saying, I will be vindicated in all of this. I'm not worried about that, whether I ever get out of this prison or not. I know that God will find me faithful and sincere, even as I wear these chains. Because you, Philippians, you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus provides for me so i have no reason for shame even as i'm handcuffed to a roman guard writing this letter i have no reason for shame i will be bold and jesus will be glorified in me no matter what befalls me so what what is it that is producing a rejoicing heart in this man what makes paul rejoice Y'all, it was not his freedom, it was not his comfort, it was not his success, or even the promise of success. His rejoicing was built singularly on the exaltation of Jesus in and through his life, no matter the cost. That was his consuming passion. Y'all, we made a big deal about this last week about the fact that Paul almost never prays for better circumstances, not for himself and not for the church. Because his greater concern was always the work that God was doing in them and the good work that God was doing through them. That's what he cared most about. And so I want to pose, at least for me, is a hard question. I think it's a hard question for all of us. What if God was willing to magnify Jesus in your life and use you greatly for his glory in the lives of others? Sounds good. But to do it, God was going to take away your comfort, your wealth, your freedoms, your personal dreams. What if? See, the first question is, would I even sign up for that in the first place? Would I sign up for that at all? And the second question is, would I rejoice in it? It'd be enough to say, okay, God, I'll let you do that if that's what it takes. But would I rejoice in it? Because that's what we see in Philippians 1. We see Paul not just enduring the difficulty, but he's glad for it because of what it's producing. Y'all remember John the Baptist. John the Baptist was uh, a forerunner of Jesus. God sent him to help pave the way and prepare people's hearts for the ministry of Christ. And John became a really big deal. He was an extremely popular, well-known, highly regarded preacher. Many people followed him. Lots of people applauded him. But at the end of John chapter 3, John the Baptist basically bows out. He gives us that famous line. He says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. John knew that his success in ministry was entirely for the sake of magnifying Jesus and not magnifying himself. That's why John says, my joy is now full. So let him increase and let me decrease. This was not a losing effort on the part of John the Baptist. He wasn't mad about it. He was happy for Jesus to take center stage and for John to fade into the background. And y'all, Paul is the same way. Paul is going to tell us in no uncertain terms in Philippians chapter 3, I've lost a great many worldly things. Paul says, I've lost all things. But I consider them rubbish because I have gained Christ. What I've lost is of no concern to me because of what I've gained in its place. I've gained Christ, the all surpassing joy and treasure of my life. Y'all, we don't stumble into that way of thinking. We don't wake up one morning and flip a switch and suddenly that's the condition of our heart. No. This attitude that we see in Paul, we see it in John the Baptist, this kind of attitude, it only comes to our hearts as we truly see Jesus for who he is, as we truly delight in Jesus for who he is, not just the hope that he might give us comfort and freedom and enjoyment day by day. God is the giver of all good gifts. Of course, we acknowledge that, but we're not seeking the comfort. We're not seeking the blessing itself. We're seeking Him. And like the song says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Only as we in our hearts see and savor, delight and treasure Jesus, do we become the kind of people who want Him to increase and for us to fade out. I don't want anybody seeing me, applauding me. I want only Jesus Christ to have the spotlight. Isn't that an amazing frame of mind? An amazing disposition of the heart? Well, we see it in Paul, don't we? Now, is Paul ever going to see the light of day again? Well, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. But he's okay. He's totally content. And you know why? Verse 21 great verse. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Isn't that a statement right there? If I live, I live for Christ, and I will enjoy him, and I will bear fruit for him. I will get to know him more and trust him more each day, if I live. And if I die, I gain even more of Christ. I get to be present with him in glory forevermore. Is is Paul right here, is he saying he doesn't care if he lives or dies? No, he does care. He does. And he shows us that in the next verse, verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, this is all rhetorical, by the way. But Paul is not actually choosing whether to live and die, he's, he's musing here on the benefits of each, that both are good in their own right. If I live, I get to continue on in fruitful labor for Jesus and for his church. If I die, I go to heaven to be with Jesus, which, of course, is the ultimate grace, the far better thing in the long run. So basically, Paul is saying, I'm not sure which one I desire more. Either way, the decision is God's, not Paul's. Paul knows that. He's not trying to make a choice here. This is not a death wish. This is not anything like that. This is Paul saying, regardless, whether in life or in death, Christ will be glorified in me, and I will be happy. I will rejoice. I will be content. And that's the kind of heart we should all aspire to. That our contentment, our joy, our our sense of purpose in this life revolves around the glory of Jesus in us and through us. And here at the end, Paul comes to some sense of resolution. Um, he, he's convinced, whether it's just his own sense of conviction or whether he's maybe heard some word from the Lord, he's convinced that this trial, at least this trial right now, is not going to end in death. You see it in verse 25? Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. As long as God keeps me here, I will be committed to your progress and joy in the faith to spur you on to greater confidence in Jesus. And again, we see Paul's motivation. Why does he want out of prison? That's what he's talking about. I believe I'm going to get out eventually. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'm convinced of it. Why does he want to get out? So he can spur others on in the grace of Christ. That's why he wants out. So he can love and serve and share and encourage. Y'all, I've made this point several times, I feel like, over the last few weeks. um, And I keep making it because... I desperately need it. I continue to need uh, this reflection, this reminder. Adversity has a way of turning us inward. We all know it to be true. Adversity has a way of turning us inward to think about mainly ourselves. We get scared. We get anxious. And we become full of self-pity inwardness. We begin to cast blame on others for our adversity, and we sink into bitterness. We're just angry. We begin to hoard, and we lose sight of the needs of others. See, all of those feelings are very natural to our sinful flesh. All of the things I just mentioned are natural to us. It's just where we tend to lean when things get tough. But what Paul is modeling for us Here, it's the opposite. Because he knows Jesus, because his heart is fixed on Christ, because Paul's purpose for life is to magnify him, Paul has no such inwardness about him. It's just not there. Or if it is there, he's he's doing a tremendous job of hiding it. I mean, just think about what he's told us today. He's in jail. So what? The gospel is spreading even still, so I rejoice. Well, some envious men are trying to discredit him. There's nothing he can do about it. So what? As long as Christ is being preached, I rejoice. At any moment, for all Paul knows, at any moment, the executioner will open the door, axe in hand, and lead Paul out to his death. So what? Christ will be exalted in me, in life or in death. Don't we all want to have that kind of heart? Don't we all want to have that kind of impervious sense of courage and joy and faith about us? That kind of attitude? Wouldn't that change everything about how we think and how we live? Well, we can. Paul was a unique individual. I'm not going to somehow diminish him and say, oh, Paul's just like the rest of us. No, Paul was an apostle. He was a big deal, make no mistake. But Paul was a sinner, self-confessed. He considered himself the greatest of all sinners, the least of the apostles. Paul had the right frame of mind about himself. He was just a man. And so Paul expresses a faith here, a, a consuming fire in his heart that all of us can share. It wasn't exclusive to him. And y'all, it's not rocket science either. It begins, always, this begins with faith in Jesus. That's where, that's the bedrock, and it has to be. When we see who Jesus is, when we see what Jesus Christ has done for us, his perfect life lived in our place, his sacrificial death taking upon himself our condemnation, our sin his glorious resurrection, sealing our hope in our future once and for all. All of Jesus' saving work has been accomplished for us and is a free gift to us. Seeing that, knowing that, pressing into that truth. He is the object of our faith. And now, having trusted him, we get to live our lives knowing him, praising him, walking with him. We get to abide in Jesus, and therefore we get to bear fruit for him and for his glory. We get to live lives that actually make a, an eternally significant impact. Because we know Christ. We get to be his disciples, as we also call ourselves his brothers and sisters. He has brought himself that close to us and has drawn us near. So if we follow Jesus by faith, we come more and more to see this, that there is no greater treasure than Christ. There is no greater ambition for our lives. There's no greater affection for our hearts. And day by day, if we by faith walk with him, we will become more and more like Paul. And you know even better than that? We become more and more like Jesus himself. That's what Paul was aiming for. Paul was not trying to be the best version of himself. Paul says, and we'll see it in a few weeks, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. He wanted Jesus to the full, to know him by faith, and to spend his life walking with him. We can be, truly, we can be so consumed with love for Jesus that we're able to see through every circumstance into his glory, just as Paul did. And this is a glory that, that we don't have to earn or live up to. This is a glory that he gives us. Remember this anchor verse? We looked at it, I guess, two weeks ago now, from early on in Philippians 1. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is graciously living in us and through us, and he will be magnified, whether in life or in death, in all things, we may live for him. We can be like Paul. No matter the circumstance, no matter the adversity, we can rejoice, provided that God is doing his great work in us and through us. And Paul certainly believed that even on his worst day, God certainly was. He was right there doing his wonderful, divine, otherworldly good work. May God give us hearts to trust him today for all he's doing. Not just for our forgiveness and salvation, but also to trust that God will birth in us a growing desire for nothing less than that Christ would be magnified in us. Would that our hearts burn like that, like Paul's did, a consuming fire. I want nothing less than for Christ to be magnified in me whether in life or in death, no matter what. Let's pray for that together. Father, it is a, it's a joy to read a scripture like this, to get insight into a man who was walking through something none of us would ever choose, ever. None of us, if we're honest, none of us would sit in a prison cell in this moment and think this is a good thing. God is, God is doing a greater work right now with me here than perhaps he'd be doing with me on the outside. I, I say, maybe there are some watching me right now more noble-minded than me. I know my own heart. I view circumstances uh, too, as too heavy, too important, too defining. It's hard for me to see, Lord, how you're doing good things through bad times. And so, Lord, I want, I want my heart to be made more and more like Paul, who rejoiced that, Lord, you were achieving your good and perfect will even while he was locked up from the outside world. Father, thank you that, we're, that our adversity is not a limitation to you. Thank you, Lord, that even at our very, at our most difficult times, that, Lord, the great work you can do in us and through us is, is, it's just not, it's not bound up by circumstance. And so, Father, give us a heart to see that and to rejoice in that, that even right now, as we face our own adversities, we may rejoice That you, Lord, are achieving great things in us and through us. And Lord, give us the kind of passion to see it through. That, Lord, whatever you desire to do in our lives, even if it's exceedingly difficult, that we would sign up without reservation. Put me on the front line, Father. And let me rejoice in the opportunity to know you more, serve you, and love others on your behalf for your sake. Father, let this be for us a consuming passion, not a side project, but something that we pursue with all our hearts because you pursued us with all of yours. Thank you that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are given sonship. We are your children. Father, let us give all our our love and devotion to you in return. We ask it in Christ's precious name today.